welcome to Carmel Presbyterian Church's podcast channel. Open up a Bible or just listen in. We hope this week's message is a blessing to you. So, whenever I sing about God's faithfulness, I'm just, it, I recognize how praiseworthy he is because his faithfulness to us de- does not depend on our faithfulness to him, and praise be to God that that's the case, or else I personally would be in a world of trouble. So do you know who has the uh, biggest influence over our kids right now? Jude Law, is that what you said? (laughs) You might think it's their friends, or their teachers, or media, or their parents. You might be even silly enough to think it's their youth pastor. But I would argue that it is none of these people. The individuals who have the most influence over our kids right now can tell them to jump, and they will respond with, how high? These people can demand that our kids not go on vacation, and they're willing to do it without any sort of hesitation. These people can make our kids get to school early and leave school late. And these people can convince our kids, that commitment matters. And as a result, our kids will not miss a single workout, practice, scrimmage, or actual game. Yes, I am talking about coaches. And recently, we had a young lady withdraw from our upcoming winter trip. And her reason was that she had a scheduled surgery. And so Amanda checked in with her this week to see how, how the surgery prep was going or what have you. Um, and she let Amanda, no, the surgery was canceled. Do you know why? Her coach told her to because there was a newly scheduled game. Now, I'm guessing that is like wisdom teeth or something and not something like that needed immediate attention, but that just shows you a little bit of the authority. And I have story after story in which a coach's authority was exercised in ways that I honestly never thought was possible, and I am very jealous of of it. The athletes and their parents are captivated by coaches. We have, we have football players who love to come on houseboats, and it pains them, but they, they won't come because they have a voluntary workout that week. We have middle schoolers who have never played volleyball, and to be honest, I'm not even sure if they like it, but after one season with their team, They end up signing up for club volleyball, which practices three times a week in Santa Cruz or somewhere else, and costs thousands of dollars for for their family. And if you didn't already know this, gone are the days of Sundays being off limit. Like clubs, school sports, all of it, they practice, they play every single day of the week. And Lalia told me that I should open, I should soften the opening of my sermon um, as to not offend. But I want to be clear about this. I admire and respect coaches and I admire and respect athletes. And I, I hope that my boys play tons of sports and have great coaches. I just really hope that they don't play baseball. <laughs> baseball, come on. In the, on the patio after the sermon, there were people that were very upset by that comment. <laughs> so I'm sorry. The fact is, we, we have a lot to learn, actually, from our coaches. And I've wanted to to do a study of them to figure out, like, what are they doing that is able to um, demand so much 
uh, just response from their athletes. The level of persuasion, respect, and influence that our society and families give them is unmatched, in my opinion. They're able to, and this is what I really admire, they're able to demand so much, and yet they still remain loved and admired. They are mentors, they are friends, they're role models. But what happens when you have a role model like this? Up oh, here it comes. crowd is loving it. <laughs> I, if I was in the crowd, I might love it too. All co coaches are role models. And when an individual is given that type of authority and respect, then they can wield that influence in either a good or a bad way. There are coaches like Bob Knight who throw chairs and even get into physical altercations with their players, and we could probably say objectively that that is a bad use of your power and influence. But more common than that, and probably a little bit more detrimental, is we've got coaches that are teaching our kids that the sport they play is the most important thing in their life. And they're using their authority to define reality for them. And let me tell you, the, the athletes are listening to that. So let me ask you this. What happens to the young girl who goes away to college and finds out she's no longer the best player on the team? She's not even in the starting lineup. And what about the guy who tears his ACL? And he'll never be able to play the sport to the level that he wanted to. I mean, their identities are rocked. Their lives are shattered because they define themselves by their athletic prowess. But I want to let you know that tons of coaches are using their authority for good. And when we see this, it, it catches our eye, because it's a beautiful thing to see. The call of Christ on our lives is for us to leverage our influence to benefit others. We see that happen in this morning's passage, Matthew 8, 5 through 13, page 813 in your pew Bibles. Let me pray. Lord, would you speak like only you can speak as we gather this morning? Tune our ears to your voice so that we might hear you ever so clearly. Turn our hearts towards you so that we can experience the fullness of all that you have for us. God, may the words from my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight. You are our strength and our redeemer. Be glorified and magnified in this place. Amen. 
So it's important to give some context to the passage before we read it. Jesus has just given arguably the most famous sermon of all time, the Sermon on the Mount. And the Bible tells us that when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. So Jesus' authority is recognized, but it's only recognized in a certain way. He's able to teach in a manner that demands attention and respect. But then when Jesus comes down from the mountain, there's a new type of authority that, that he shows. First, he heals a leper with his touch. Then he makes his way back to Capernaum, and that is where we pick up the narrative in verse 5. When he had entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward to him, appealing to him. Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. And he said to him, I will come and heal him. But the centurion replied, Lord, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed him, Truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And, the centurion, and to the centurion Jesus said, Go, let it be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. If you were here last week, um, Pastor Reed preached for us, and the initial request of the centurion might stick out to you because it's not a, res- not a request at all. He just approaches Jesus and lets him know the situation. He lets him know the problem, which is what Mary does when the wedding feast runs out of wine. She just says, Jesus, we ran out of wine. And that is a wonderful way to pray. And scripture tells us to cast our anxieties and our worries on the Lord for he cares for you. He really does just want to know what's going on in our lives. He really does just want to know what troubles us. And as we proceed this morning, I want you to recognize three things. I want you to recognize yourself, recognize Jesus, and recognize opportunities. First, recognize yourself who are you? What do you do? What roles do you fill in your family, your job, your community, your school? For example, I'm a husband to Lalia. I am a dad to Judah and Silas. I'm an uncle to six nephews. I am a son. I am a pastor. What about you? Take a moment to think about that, because if you haven't had a job interview, this is always the first question, which is the hardest one. They open it up with, Tell me about yourself. When someone asks you to do that, how do you respond? In our passage, we encounter a centurion who was stationed in Capernaum. We have no means of knowing how large a force may have been stationed there with him, but the centurion was the commander of a unit of 100 soldiers. And he may well have been the top guy, the senior officer in that particular area. And he knows who he is. 
He knows his role. He has troops that serve him. They look to him for their marching orders. They respect his position, and they depend on his leadership. And when he tells them to do something, what do they do? They do it. So they are at his beck and call, but likewise, the centurion knows that he also has commanding officers over him. And like any good soldier, he knows who he is and who he's in charge of, and he knows who's in charge of him. What about you? Who do you have authority or influence over? Now, I think I'm supposed to have influence over my three-year-old son, almost three-year-old son. And sometimes he listens to what I say, except for when I ask him to go to sleep or to get in the car or to eat what I want him to eat or to put on the pajamas that I picked out or to stop hitting his brother. But aside from that... I have authority and power over him, I think. I'm his protector. And I tell him, I give him kind of the guardrails, right, that I'm, I'm willing to play within. I tell him what he can and cannot do. I also have some influence over our students in our youth group, right? A little bit? Sometimes, she says. Again, they might not always do what I tell them to do, but I am, in fact, in a position of authority over them. And some of the authority just comes from my titles alone, that I am a pastor and a dad. And the reality is that, that roles and titles matter in this world. I began this morning by demonstrating the amount of respect that the role of coach has in our society. Likewise, spending most of my time in a naval town, I know that a person's rank says a lot about who they are and where they fall in the pecking order. They are known and they are called by their title. And so I know that an admiral is far above anyone who has the word petty in their title. <laughs> There's lots of petty ranks. As for the rank of centurion, this meant that the man was a seasoned warrior and he had worked hard in order to achieve a very high status in the military. He was to be respected, perhaps even feared. So it is quite interesting that a person of his standing would approach Jesus and call him Lord. Even if the man was just trying to be respectful or polite, it was significant that he, an officer of occupying forces, would refer to a member of the subject race in such a manner. He is a Roman soldier addressing a Jew like that. But that brings us to our next point that we must recognize Jesus. You must know who Jesus is. This soldier seems to know who Jesus is. This might be because a military man recognizes authority when he sees it, but regardless of how he knows Jesus' power, he makes it clear that even his own status and reputation pale in comparison to Jesus's. He says, Lord, I am not worthy for you to come under my roof, but only say the word and my servant will be healed. The centurion knows what it's like to be in charge. He sees something unique in Jesus. He sees that Jesus is in charge in a special kind of way. Jesus has an exclusive kind of authority. Whereas others saw this in Jesus too, so at the end of that Sermon on the Mount, people were all talking about how, how he had authority and was different from the scribes. 
it seems as though the centurion's faith is on a completely different level. Healing elsewhere in the Bible depends on Jesus touching someone or someone touching Jesus. But in this case, it's almost an even bigger miracle. The healing requested by the centurion is far beyond anyone has ever seen or experienced yet. He says, only say the word from a great distance and he will be healed. The simple confidence of the centurion is explained in the following words. For I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. The orders which he issues at the human level are compared with those he expects Jesus to issue at the spiritual level. He has the no-nonsense faith of a practical man. In his mind, Jesus has dominion over the spiritual in the same way the centurion has power over his own soldiers. All it takes is a word. The recognition of the power and authority of Jesus by the centurion actually amazes Jesus. This is the only time in Matthew's gospel that someone or something else amazes Jesus. Usually, if you read the gospels, Jesus is the one doing the amazing. But this passage is not just about the miraculous power of Christ. I ask that we would recognize Jesus, and Jesus has so many different facets to who he is. And one thing that is shining through this passage is Jesus' unrestricted compassion. Jesus is a Jewish rabbi who has come for the lost sheep of Israel. The man standing before him is a Roman pagan who is there to serve the emperor above all else. He does not have any allegiance to the Jewish God. He does not uphold any Jewish laws. He is an outsider. Some would consider him an enemy. But nevertheless, he approaches Jesus even if it means humiliation for himself. And his faithful demonstration leads Jesus to make an example of him. Jesus says that this Roman pagan, Imagine you're a Jew at this point, that this Roman pagan will be invited to the messianic banquet seated with all of the Hebrew patriarchs, not because of his ancestry, but because of his faith in Jesus Christ. And those Jews who do not recognize the power, authority, and role of Jesus will be cast out into the darkness. Essentially what Jesus is saying is be more like this Roman heathen. So when I tell you to recognize Jesus, I'm telling you to recognize the gracious Son of God who extends an invitation to any and all people. Who will you extend an invitation to? Who will you leverage your influence for in order to see them know and receive the love of Christ? And that is where we end up with our final point to recognize your opportunities. As you grow in the knowledge of yourself and who Jesus Christ is, you must also capitalize on the unique opportunities granted to you. The centurion not only demonstrates faith in Jesus, he also shows us what kind of leader he really is. He's not coming to Christ with a request to heal a family member 
or to heal someone that will really benefit him at all. He goes on behalf of his servant, on behalf of his slave. The centurion uses his power and authority as an opportunity to bless someone that he rules over. And this is the heart of what Jesus says in Matthew 20, what Mac read to us. But again, the centurion's actions seem to be completely counter to even what Jesus' closest disciples are doing. In Matthew 20, they are basically having a power struggle, and Jesus called them to him and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave, even as the Son of Man came not to be served but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom to many. That's what the centurion is doing. He seized an opportunity to approach Jesus on behalf of his suffering slave. He put his own status and reputation on the line for someone beneath him. He serves someone who cannot serve themselves. So let's return to a variation of that first question I asked you. Who do you have authority and influence over? Think about it. Think about one person that you have influence over. Now, every single one of us has authority over someone else. It might be in the temporary sense, like if you go out to lunch after the service today, you will have, while you're at the restaurant, authority over the server, not after lunch. You can't just tell servers all the time what to do. But when you're there for that temporary time, you actually have an influence and authority over that person. And then there are other times when you have a more permanent status like that, like over your children or your siblings or employees or students. And I used coaching as an example of people who have authority. And I did that partly because it's somewhat timely with a national championship that just happened, Super Bowl last week, and then my favorite, it's March Madness in a few weeks. And you might not know this about me, but I was also a coach. In Florida, I got my soccer coaching license, and I ended up being the JV soccer coach for Satellite Beach High School. And I will admit that I pulled a Bob Knight a couple times, and I lost my cool on several occasions. I freaked out on referees, and um, it was not pretty. <laughs> but my team and their parents knew that I cared for them, and they knew that, that I didn't think soccer was the thing that would define them. They knew that I didn't think soccer was the most important thing in their lives. And when I messed up, I would apologize immediately. And this literally was almost too much for parents to handle. They were shocked at my apologies. And they would say, no, 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 no. Don't apologize. You were right. The ref was wrong. We won the game, didn't we? And I'm going, yeah. But I hold myself and my players to a higher standard. And it wasn't about me trying to exude some higher morality over them. It wasn't even about me teaching them something. When I coached soccer, I would play soccer with them. If I was going to discipline them and make them do running drills, I would run those drills with them. I tried to show compassion and grace when they had to miss a practice or game, 
And they knew that I was in charge, but I tried to use my position to show the love of Christ in practical ways. And I am definitely not the only one who does this. There are countless men and women who coach out of an overflow of their heart. They want their athletes to grow up to be better human beings and citizens. They simply just use the platform of coaching as a means to an end. It's the same way with so many of the teachers that are in our congregation. They leverage their influence in order to do something good. An example of this is Clemson football coach Dabo Swinney. Here he is right after winning a college football championship a month ago, cameras in his face, millions of people watching him, a man with an immense amount of authority and respect who is given this platform. And pay attention to what he says and how he says it. show more joy than you do. How do you describe the joy of the moment? Well, that's, that's been my word all year, and, and I've just tried to have been, in, I've tried to be intentional with that. And uh, for me personally, joy comes from focusing on Jesus, others, and yourself. And uh, man, I mean, you know, very few people, there's so many great coaches that, that are so deserving of a moment like this that never get the chance to experience it. And uh, to get to do it once and now to get to do it again, you know, I'm just, it's just a, it's a blessing, and, I, and I, it's just simply the grace of the good Lord to allow us to experience something like this, and I'm so happy for our team, our fans, our administration, our former players that love the ball, and, uh, and you know, there ain't never been a 15-0 team, and I know we're not supposed to be here, we're just little old Clemson, and I'm not supposed to be here, but we are, and I am. And I, how about them Tigers, man? I'm so proud of our guys, these seniors. We beat Notre Dame in Alabama. We left no doubt. And we walk off this field tonight as the first 15-0 team in, in college football history. And uh, all the credit, all the glory goes to the good Lord, number one. And number two, to these young people. When you get a young group of people that believe, are passionate, they love each other, they sacrifice, they're committed to to, to a, a singleness of purpose, you better look out. Great things can happen, and that's what you saw tonight. Did you, yeah, awesome. Did you hear what he said through the confetti and yelling about what his word was for the year? It was joy. Jesus, others, and yourself. He just told that to the world. And by the looks of it, he seems to be living it out authentically. Now, I mean, he just won a national championship, so he should be happy. But I've, been wa I've watched this a dozen times. I've showed it to our students. There's, there's something different about that guy. And I don't know about you, but he is the kind of coach that I would want leading my sons. Heck, he, I want to play for him. <laughs> He's the type of guy who is leveraging his influence in order to bless others and glorify God. How are you leveraging your influence in order to bless others and glorify God? So you got that one person in your mind that you have authority over. Think about their face, their name. What you say to that person carries an immense amount of weight. How you act around that person is utterly important. Do you think that your presence in their life is a blessing? 
Do you pray for them? If you don't, it's a good place to start, to pray that God would bless them, that God would open up opportunities for you to serve them with humility. In the final verse, Jesus says, go, let it be done for you as you believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. The servant is the one who is healed, and yet Jesus tells the centurion, let it be done for you as you have believed. He doesn't say, let it be done for him, the servant. He says, let it be done for you, the centurion. When we leverage our influence for the benefit of others, it not only blesses them, it also increases our faith as we get to experience the matchless power and authority of Jesus Christ at work in our world. Let's pray. Lord God, reveal to us our opportunities to bless and serve others. Help us to have a firm understanding of who we are and more importantly, who you are. And now, God, we are granted a very practical way to leverage our influence. Help us to be generous in all things and in all ways. Lord, use our time, our talents, and our treasures to impact your kingdom here, near, and far. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more information about Carmel Presbyterian Church, visit our website at www.carmelpres.org or any of our social media pages. Have a blessed rest of your week.